0: First of all, a very warm welcome to St Paul's this evening. My name is Andrew Carwood, and I'm the Director of Music here at the Cathedral. And you are very welcome to this place, which has been a centre of debate for, well, really for its entire history, whether that's debating the rights and wrongs of the Bible in English or reform of the City of London. I'm going to introduce our speaker in a moment but if you are new to this event may I just briefly explain what will happen in a moment Brian McLaren will talk to us about his vision for a new kind of Christianity if you have a question for him and this evening is as much about you, it's certainly nothing to do with me, if you have a question for him please write it on the back of your leaflet while he's speaking and hold it up to be collected we will have people circling the dome area who will come to you and collect your questions we'll collect questions until about 7 30 can I ask you to be brief in your descriptions of the question because that way we can get as many in as we, we possibly can we will end promptly at 8 o'clock and Brian's books will be for sale here under the dome after that and he will sign copies as well it is now a great pleasure for me to introduce to you brian mclaren he is a writer a speaker an activist and one of the most important public theologians of our time he left a university teaching career to help form the cedar ridge community church an innovative non-denominational church to which he was pastor for 20 years and he is now a leading figure in the emerging church movement in America, reimagining church and Christianity for a new generation and a new century. His many best-selling books include A Generous Orthodoxy, Naked Spirituality, and just published Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Mohammed Cross the Road? This evening, he will be reflecting on his crucial book, A New Kind of Christianity, in which he puts to us some of the essential questions which we need to ask about how we can follow Jesus in the 21st century. He is a speaker who is hugely in demand. He arrived in the UK 24 hours ago, and we are very honoured and delighted to have him with us here this evening. So, would you please now give a very warm welcome to Brian McLaren? Thanks.
1: Well, I should say that it is a great honor for me to be here. I think the sound system is working fine, but you've probably picked up that I have an accent from the far western provinces of the kingdom. <laughs> Uh, I hope uh, the accent won't be a problem. The series that uh, the cathedral has sponsored under the title The Case for God is certainly a worthwhile uh, topic of debate and discussion at this time in our history. Uh, every one of us wake up each day looking at the headlines, whether on a mobile device or uh, remember paper newspapers or uh, on the television or on your computer. And we wonder what has happened since we went to sleep in the name of God. Uh, what building has been blown up? What, what uh, threat has been made? What explanation for a uh, catastrophe has been attributed to God in what way? And it's not a surprise that an awful lot of people observe the way God is used to justify the unjustifiable, and they decide that the world would be better off if we could just uh, dispense with the entire subject of divinity. Uh, So when we open this question, the case for God, I think we have to talk about which version of God we're making a case for. Uh, We might say something similar if we were to have a debate called the case for science. Uh, If we were to only define science as science before Copernicus, uh, we would find it easy to say that that kind of science we've outgrown and although it is an interesting part of our history, we're ready to move on to other things. Or if it were only Newtonian science that we wanted to make a case for, well, it, in the age of the, the, uh, uh, in the po- age of post-Einstein, in the age of muons and gluons and uh, what some have called the God particle, a uh, Newtonian science, we would say yes, it's important. It explains a lot, but it doesn't explain everything. So in today's world, if we were to make a case for science, one of the first things we would say is that science grows. Science has proven itself capable of growing and learning. In fact, the scientific method is a method of positing theories and then critiquing them and replacing them when a better theory comes into view. And I think when we want to talk about God and Christianity and uh, a case for God and a case for Christianity, we have to ask ourselves, is our faith equipped with the same capacity for growth and learning as science is? And sadly, uh, often spokespeople for God and for religion and for faith Uh, demonstrate an amazing capacity uh, for refusal to think. And um, so when you ask me about whether I believe in God, I would first have to say, well, which God are you talking about? If you said, well, the Christian God, I would also have to say, well, which version of the Christian God are you talking about? It's interesting to me that the first Christians were persecuted For atheism. Uh, They refused to believe. In the gods of the Greek. And Roman pantheon. And because they rejected. God as God was commonly defined. Or the gods. As the gods were commonly defined. All that people could think of. uh, To categorize them under. Was the term atheist. They just don't believe in God. As we understand God. And I think. The issue of which God we're talking about, which version we're talking about, it becomes especially important in today's world, a post-9-11 world, a post-7-7 world. My background uh, was Christian fundamentalism. I grew up on the far right branch, on a far right little twig on the branch of Christian fundamentalism. And I would have to say that so much of the God that I was taught about as a child, I still find valuable and believable. But much of what I was taught in my fundamentalist Christian upbringing, if I were put up for the test in front of some of uh, those folks, they would certainly call me a heretic, if not an atheist. For my life, this question of who God is and what God is about, it's been a live question. One that I have found I must have the capacity, just as a scientist is ready to critique his theories, I have to have the capacity to critique and question my own beliefs. There's a beautiful poem by an Israeli poet, Yehuda Amichai. Many of you, I imagine, know it. From the place where we are right, flowers will never bloom in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow, and a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. Ironically, every religion, one of its greatest dangers, comes in the places where it is certain it is right. And when we're willing to let doubt and love dig up our world, we find the possibility for our faith to be reborn and reconfigured. From my upbringing as a, uh, as a fundamentalist, I made the great mistake of becoming an English major in university. And uh, uh, for many, many points in my spiritual development, I thought because of what I was reading, what I was being exposed to, I was one step away from leaving the Christian faith entirely. Along the way, I stumbled into, uh, onto C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis made it possible for me through my college years to retain my Christian faith. In graduate school, I stumbled onto some other writers, Walker Percy and some others who opened up even broader expanses for me to retain my Christian faith with intellectual honesty and so it turns out that being an English major and of course I just was introduced to John Donne in the back uh, uh, when you're introduced to that great tradition of literature and critical thinking and critical engagement with texts I, I just realized that I would never again fit in a vision of Christianity that was a closed room no matter how beautiful the paintings and statues were on the walls, I needed to be in a kind of Christian faith that had windows and doors uh, that invited me to look out into something wider and greater. That continued when I ended up leaving uh, my first career as a college English teacher and I became a pastor and uh, I was uh, working along as a pastor for five or seven years and one by one people would begin attending my church and then they would make an appointment to come see me and they would bring all of their questions. They would say, listen, I like listening to you on Sunday. I was an agnostic when I came. Now I think I'm a theist. Or they'd say, I was an atheist when I came. Now I'm an agnostic. And I would say, well, these are all steps in a journey. Uh, And then they would bring me their very best questions. And uh, I would give them my very best answers. Many of them I learned from C.S. Lewis and others. Sometimes they would leave my office and I would say, I think your question was better than my answer. And sometimes I would think, I would feel disappointed if they were satisfied with my answer because after they left, I wasn't satisfied with my answer. And so all of those questions built up and that dissatisfaction built up. And in the early 1990s, I went through a kind of crisis in my own faith where I had to grapple with other people's questions now as my own questions. And, uh, you know, I've had a relatively easy life. I've had a few challenges, but I I will say one of the hardest things you can do is be a member of the clergy while you're going through a faith crisis of your own. Uh, I, I wish it weren't the case. I mean, there's some sense that we ought to expect that anybody who's going to devote their life to uh, to serving God and serving the church, they're the people who are going to have to encounter the toughest questions and the toughest moral conundrums we We should expect that they would have rough times in their faith, but very often we expect, oh no, they're clergy. This is all easy for them. So as I went through my struggles and grappling with my questions, to make matters worse, I would go to my friends and I would share my questions with them and they would give me such a look of either horror or disappointment or just mystification. They didn't know what I was talking about. I realized if I kept bothering my friends with my questions, I was actually harming them. And so on top of having the questions was a great sense of aloneness and not even knowing who I could talk to about them. But by the grace of God, I stumbled upon some authors and stumbled upon some good conversation partners. And um, eventually I started to feel that if I peeled away the surface with this question and I went a layer deeper with this question and I dug down a little deeper at this question. I wondered if there'd be anything when I was finished left, but I began to see uh, maybe a new way of configuring my faith. And I started writing a few books on the subject and then people started asking me to speak about the subject uh, in some places, quite surprising places. And I, I discovered that people around the world in the Christian faith are asking amazingly similar questions, whether it's with highly educated intellectual people in Europe, for example, or whether it's with people sitting under a tree in East Africa, people who've never traveled outside of their country and have never had any opportunity to read half of the books that people like us have read still they're grappling with very, very similar questions about God, about faith, about Christianity. And so uh, I wrote this book a couple of years ago called A New Kind of Christianity where I tried to take all the questions I'd heard these other people asking, correlate them with my own questions, and I tried to present 10 questions that I believe are transforming the faith. And all I'd like to do in the next few moments is... I'd like to tell you what those 10 questions are. I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about the first of those questions. And then we'll open it up and you might want to explore any of the others in the time we'll have for discussion. Here are those 10 questions. The first one is this. It's what I call the narrative question. What is the big story that the Christian faith is trying to tell? What is the big story this big scope of history, what is the narrative arc that the Christian faith is trying to tell? Second, the authority question. Where does the Christian faith derive its authority? Now, everyone sooner or later will speak about the Bible, and so this ends up being a question about the Bible and the Bible's authority, uh, an especially problematic and important issue. As we near the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, uh, that re emphasized the authority of the Bible. You know, for people my age and older, when they hear the word Bible, they think a source of morality. People my age and younger hear the word Bible and they think a source of immorality because they think of how the Bible has been used to cause so much damage. And harm That authority question is a critical one uh, for the Christian faith in this century. Third is the God question. Uh, especially because in today's world, the question of whether we believe God is violent uh, in some ways underlies every discussion we have about religion and public life. How can we speak of God in relation to our ancient texts when so many of our texts, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, even Hindu, our texts present images of the divine that are violent, sometimes genocidal, sometimes geocidal. The fourth question for us as Christians, if we look at the first three questions in a fresh way, the fourth question is, Jesus, who is he? Why is he important? If we answer those first four questions in a fresh way, we'll be brought quickly to a fifth question, the gospel. What is the basic Christian gospel? What really is that message? Sixth question, obviously, depending on how we answer the first five It will raise questions about the church. What is the church? What is it for? Uh, We've had five centuries of argument about what is its form. But now we have to ask what is it for? Uh, Because we know that the forms of church that we've inherited uh, are under stress at every turn. And we have to go deeper to ask the very purpose uh, of the church whatever its form. The seventh question is the sex question. It's been uh, brought to the fore, especially because of the issue of uh, homosexuality and the identity of uh, gay people. But it's also, I hear in England, it's even being discussed in relation to women. And uh, how does gender and sexuality How does that relate to our vision of God and Christian faith? Uh, In my opinion, not only is this an important question, but it's an interesting question to say, why has it risen to the surface so much at this point in history? Why has it become such a defining issue now? Because I think the sex question is ultimately a question about humanity. We're not only asking about sexuality, we're asking what it means to be A human being in a body uh, not only a body that is identified by gender but a body that's identified by brain chemistry and all of the complexities of medical advancement psychopharmacology uh, our understandings of human evolution all of this is forcing us to grapple with what we might call theological anthropology in a profound way and the sex question in some ways is the tip of that whole iceberg. Eighth is the future question. Uh, the Christian faith has been famous f- through its history for making predictions about the future. Uh, some of them uh, maybe will go the way of the, uh, the Aztec predictions uh, uh, or Mayan predictions that people are talking about. Uh, but what is the vision of the future? Does the Christian faith predict the end of the world. And how does our understanding of the Christian faith's vision of the future affect us in the present? I'll just tell you, I think it's different here in the UK, but in my country, we still have the the center of resistance against uh, accepting the reality of human-induced climate change. The center of that resistance is still in the Christian faith. And... Uh, If there's going to be change in our action uh, I'm speaking as an American whose country leads the way in producing greenhouse gases If there's going to be a change in our action in relation to global climate issues There is going to have to be a theological shift in our vision of the future I'm often told when I write or speak about this subject in my country Don't worry about the climate. The world's going to end soon anyway. The ninth question is the one that my most recent book addresses, the pluralism question. Is it possible for us to have a passionate faith and a passionate commitment to our faith and to live in peace and mutual respect with people who do not share that faith? Uh, Is there a way for us to show love and respect for people of other faiths? without watering down or losing the fervency of our own faith commitment. Uh, that is obviously such an important subject that after writing A New Kind of Christianity, I wanted to address it in a much deeper way in my more recent book. And then the 10th of those questions is what I call the next step question. That is, how can we talk about the first nine questions without blowing each other up? <laughs> and how can we move forward in an ongoing a conversation about those first nine very important questions. Now, I'd just like to say something briefly about that first question, the narrative question, because it's the only one of the ten that I haven't actually had people articulate to me in exactly that way. I haven't had people say, What is the biblical narrative? What is the biblical storyline? But I've come to realize that that is a question that underlies so many of the questions that sincere Christians have about their own faith and that people outside the Christian faith have when they try to look in at it. And uh, I've got to use my... um, My sort of uh, virtual PowerPoint slide at this point. Uh, And I'm going to ask you to help me create an imaginary scene here. But you all know what a plot line looks like. It's just a a way to describe a storyline. I think the Christian storyline that many of us inherited could be diagrammed like this. I hope you're paying attention. A straight line. A descending line. A low line here. We might have this one a kind of squiggly line. An ascending line and a straight line. That's five. One, two, three, four, five. And then there's one more. It goes from the bottom most point here straight down. Okay? Now, I'm pretty sure that all of you who grew up either conservative Protestant or conservative Catholic would be able to fill in that six-line plot diagram. You'd be able to fill that in with no trouble. If you're Eastern Orthodox, you would see this differently. This is the plot line of Western Christianity uh, primarily. But the plot line would go like this. A perfect creation in the Garden of Eden. Something called the fall. We're living in the fallen world. The, the end will come, which will mean for some, salvation. And an eternal state in heaven. And for everybody else, the door opens downward to an eternal state of perdition in hell. And for many people, that is Christianity. And that's the only way you can define Christianity. That's the only way to tell that story. Well, I had a problem because I was an English major. I read Genesis as a work of literature. And when I read the book of Genesis and I tried to read the whole Bible this way, I realized that I would never have come up with that plot line simply from reading the biblical story myself. And I began to wonder, where did that story come from? For someone like me who grew up in a very Bible-oriented family, every verse of the Bible I would read, I would fit into one of those six lines. Every verse was explainable in terms of that grand narrative. I, this is one of those things you could never prove. It's more of a hunch than anything else. For that reason, uh, you know, you can take it with a grain of salt. But I remember when I began drawing that plot line on paper, I just wondered, maybe this isn't really the story of the Bible. Maybe this is really the story of Plato's cave. From the Platonic ideal a fall into what we might call the Aristotelian real. And salvation is getting us back to the Platonic ideal again. And if it doesn't work out so well, we could end up with Plato. Well, yes, there we go. I began to wonder, maybe that story of Plato's cave, an ideal world, a fallen world, a return to an ideal world. And then I wondered, maybe this is also the narrative of Roman politics. That the world has fallen into barbarism. And the only way to be, to be saved is to go through the process of development and re-enter the empire once again. And I wondered, would it be possible to talk about the Christian faith with suspicion about that six-line narrative? What might the biblical story look like if we were to do that? Well, that required me to ask a question. How would we read the Bible frontwards? Now, when I say frontwards... What I mean is this, somebody today has interest in Christianity, they ask one of you, what about Christianity, and you, all of us, have a sight line back to our founder. We look back to our founder, we might not even be aware of this, but depending on our denomination, if we're Catholic, we might look back through Newman to Aquinas to Uh, August, to Anselm, to Augustine, uh, and so on, back to Paul and Jesus. If we're Protestant, we might look back through John Calvin, or we might look back through John Wesley, or we might look back through Thomas Cranmer, and we'll eventually get back to Martin Luther and Aquinas and Augustine and so on. But we all come through our various sight lines, uh, and we read the Bible through those sight lines That we've inherited. That's where that six line narrative came in. Somewhere in that history. We've learned to read the Bible that way. It raised the question for me. Could we. This is a matter of interpretation. This is not something easy in any way. But could we try to go back. And instead of understanding Jesus. And the New Testament. Primarily through the sight line. Of their descendants. Could we go back and try to reconstruct the story of their ancestors and try to understand Jesus first and foremost coming into the story of his ancestors? Shouldn't that be a good starting place? Instead of talking about Billy Graham and uh, so on, all the way to Aquinas and and Augustine and so on, what if we were to say, how could we understand Jesus coming into the story of John the Baptist. And how could we understand Jesus and John coming into the story of Amos and Micah and Isaiah? And how could we understand them coming into the story of David and them into the sto- story of Moses and them into the story of Abraham and so on? Could we resituate Jesus and the early Christians in the narrative story into which they would have seen themselves coming? Well, to do that as a Christian I have to go and consult my Jewish friends. And if you ask the rabbis, they will tell you that the primary narrative into which Jesus would have come was the narrative of Exodus. The narrative of God looking down on the world and seeing the Hebrew children suffering and groaning and crying under the oppression of slavery in Egypt. Now, we don't think of this because the story is so familiar, but in the ancient world, what is shocking about that story is that in the ancient world, everyone knew that the gods, when they looked down at the world, they didn't pay attention to the slaves, they paid attention to the slave owners. God was on the side of Pharaoh, not the slaves. God was on the side of the nobles, not the people at the bottom of the social pyramid. And to say that the creator cares about the people at the bottom, it was a socially revolutionary statement to make. And it became the primary narrative that God cares about us when we're oppressed and and that God is on the side of those of us who have been enslaved. That liberation narrative was the primary narrative. Now that narrative though, in some ways, it's a little bit like Star Wars. You need episode one to tell you how you got the, uh, into such a problem. How did we get into slavery to begin with? So then it turns out there is a prequel to that primary narrative. We find it in the book of Genesis. If, this is, if the Exodus narrative is the narrative of liberation, the Genesis narrative is the narrative of creation. The creation of the world up until... Up until our ancestors being in slavery. That's I think how uh, we would understand that narrative. Creation leading to liberation. But when you go to the end of the Exodus story. You have the, the children of Israel going through the wilderness. That's like ending a movie with a big to be continued. Because they aren't home yet. So you know there has to be a sequel to that narrative too. Now, you would say, well, wouldn't the sequel be getting to the promised land? And that would be a great sequel, except for one thing. As soon as the children, Hebrew children made it out of the wilderness into the promised land, the land of milk and honey, they made a discovery. And that is, it's not so great to live in a land of milk and honey if everybody around you wants some of your milk and honey. And then you start to realize that having a promised land is never enough when the people around you want your land. And so, in the aftermath of that Exodus story, a new narrative emerges that's not merely the narrative of a promised land. It's the narrative of a promised time. A time when everyone will have his own vine and fig tree where everyone will be able to live with their basic needs met so that they won't be conquering and invading uh, and occupying other lands and holding other people under the oppression that the Hebrew children remembered. And so you might say we have a three-part narrative of creation, liberation, and then this vision it comes through through all the prophets, but Isaiah, I'll pick, because Isaiah is the one quoted the most in the New Testament, especially the second part of Isaiah. And I'm going to call that the narrative of reconciliation. When all of the nations of the world learn to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, when they don't study war anymore, and so now no one will have to be afraid. Now you could try to take that those three stories and create a master narrative. But one of the things I noticed as I was grappling with this is that that's never done in the Bible. A simple single master narrative is never given to us. But rather many small narratives are given to us. The story of Ruth. The story of Jonah. The story of uh, Of Samuel, the story of David. And I began to think somewhat playfully. Instead of thinking about a single two-dimensional storyline of whatever shape, maybe what we're given in the scriptures is something far greater. Not a two-dimensional storyline, but maybe we could say a three-dimensional story space. If you want to think of it this way, where creation is like length and where liberation is like height and where reconciliation is like depth. And so we live in an expanding universe. It's not an anything goes universe. There is, as Dr. King said, a grain to the universe or a moral arc to the universe. But it's a universe that is intended to expand in greater creation, greater liberation, and greater reconciliation. And into that story space comes Jesus. And into that story space comes what we call the Christian faith. And maybe in that narrative framework, we can begin to imagine a new kind of Christianity. And it makes us then investigate the case for God in a new way. Because now we begin by understanding God as the spirit behind creation, the creator behind creation, the liberator behind liberation, the reconciler behind reconciliation. And when we understand God in that way, we open the way, I think, for a bona fide new kind or of Christianity, a new chapter. In Christian history. All of this will come together in the coming weeks when once again we who are Christians enter the season of Advent. And we will audaciously sing and proclaim truths that many of us fail to really grasp even as we sing the song. That God's greatest revelation was not in a book or legal code, was not through one race or nation, was not even a religion, but rather God's great self-revelation was through a humble, courageous, non-violent person. A person characterized by creativity, characterized by a desire to liberate all who were oppressed, Characterized by a spirit of reconciliation, so that unexpected people were welcomed to the table. Whatever a new kind of Christian will be, I think it will recenter on Jesus and understand Jesus through the sight line of his ancestors and will understand Jesus within this fresh image of God. And something will happen to us if we allow that transformation to happen. Because a vision of God as creator, liberator, and reconciler makes claims on all who say they believe and follow that God. A new kind of Christianity would lead to a new kind of Christian identity and a new kind of Christian living and practice in our world. And I'm quite certain it's in that hope that people like you would gather in this place tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Brian, for that, uh, that thoughtful and thought-provoking uh, speech. This is your chance now to put questions uh, to Brian. Can I just remind you of the process? If you have a question to ask, please write it on the back of your programme. Hold it clearly in the air and they will be collected. And by the miracle of modern technology, they will appear in this screen in front of me. And I will then be able to put them. Uh, to Brian. We have some in already, which is great, but please don't be bashful. If there is something you want to ask, then please do so. Brian, I'm going to play the chairman's um, card to start off with and ask just one question of my own, and I promise I shall back out after that point. But it seems to me one of the big difficulties for Christianity, a a little bit like analysing literature, is that people simply don't agree on what they read. now. There's, there are various hot potatoes um, in the Church of England at the moment. There are statements in the Bible which appear to be unequivocal. Say, you must not, oh, you must. And people argue backwards and forwards, and we are, as a, a communion, d- divided on what that should mean. How, how do you address those difficulties? Yes, well, so many of the ten
1: questions I talked about really do eventually trace back to that authority question. What is the Bible? What is the Bible for And how is it meant to be read and interpreted and applied? Um, If I could, for a moment, I'd like to speak just as an American. uh, And I think you all here in this room, you know enough about our history that this will make sense to you. You have your own issues that you could deal with in, in your history. But as you all know, we took a long time to deal with the issue of slavery. Uh, You you all uh, uh, outlawed slavery decades before we did and in those intervening decades the primary defense for slavery was theological. Uh, The literature, the theological literature defending slavery is not well known because thankfully nobody's interested in it. Uh, But Many people here, for example, would have heard of a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was a novel that was written uh, by the wife of a Baptist preacher. Her name was Harriet Beecher Stowe. And she wrote a a novel about slaves, about African uh, slaves in the American South. And the novel humanized the slaves. It begins with the story of a child being ripped away from his mother because the child was the master's property to be sold to someone else. And when people read this story, when white people read this story, it humanized black slaves in a way that began to turn the tide away from support for slavery. Now... What you don't know is a novel, for example, called Nellie Norton that was uh, very popular in the South. And it was a novel written to counteract uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it used all kinds of biblical arguments to glorify slavery as a wonderful and biblical idea. And um, here's the irony for me as an American in the 21st century. over 150 years after the end of slavery, there has been no serious discussion, widespread discussion in the United States about how the Bible was used to defend slavery and how the Bible was used to oppose slavery and support abolition. It would seem to me my country would have a moral obligation to go back and say, however they used the Bible to defend slavery we should stop using the Bible that way. And however the Bible is used on the side of ab- abolition, we should begin to use the Bible that way. We could do the same with how the Bible is used to oppose Copernicus and Galileo. We would have a moral obligation to rethink those, that way of reading and interpreting the Bible. And that simply hasn't happened on the grassroots level. Uh, it's, happened, it's It's happening among theologians, but it hasn't happened in a way that gets communicated to people at the grassroots. And so my I think what we have to do is we've got to finally have that discussion. It reminds me, the importance of it uh, came home to me a couple of years ago when I was involved in an important dialogue between Christians and Muslims. It happened through the invitation of a group of Muslim scholars after, uh, after Pope Benedict made some Uh, unfortunate comments about the Prophet Muhammad and about Islam in Regensburg, Germany. Some of you may remember those comments. Uh, A group of Muslim scholars got together and they said, listen, if a Danish cartoonist can bring riots to the streets, and more recently we would say some uh, filmmakers, if you want to call it a film in America, Uh, they they said, look, we've got to get religious leaders being more careful about the way we talk about one another's faiths. And they sent a letter to the Vatican saying, we're 40-some, 30-some scholars. Uh, Could we engage in some serious dialogue together? And as far as I know, that letter was never answered. It certainly wasn't answered within a year. And that group of uh, 30-some Muslim scholars invited a larger group so that the total group was over 130. And they wrote a document that was called A Common Word Between Us and You. And the basic idea of this document was this. We Muslim scholars uh, notice that Jesus said the great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We Muslim scholars have met and we agree. That is the greatest commandment. So based on the commandment of Jesus that you Christians call Lord We're asking you, if we're supposed to love our neighbors, that should begin with speaking with one another. Can we talk? And uh, I was honored to be among an initial group of people uh, who wrote uh, a response of Christian leaders to this document. And we had a meeting. And in that meeting, uh, I'll never forget a Muslim scholar who said, does anyone in this room doubt that if human remains go up smokestacks in the century ahead as they did in the last century, and if it happens in America or Europe, it will be Muslim ashes going up the smokestack. And so, you know, when you ask this question about how we read the Bible, it certainly has huge effects on gay people. It certainly has huge effects on women. And it, and it not only has effects on who can serve in what capacities, it has effects on whether people live or die. So this issue of how we read the Bible is a phenomenally important moral issue. And I didn't answer your question, but I hope that at least uh, uh, addresses the importance of it. And maybe someone else will ask something, I'll come back to that. That's,
0: that's very good. Um, and in fact, uh, we've got a couple of questions here. Um, which pick up on am I back on yeah back on Um, that's a a very good answer as far as I'm concerned because it allows me to move to uh, a couple of questions uh, that we've had from the floor Um, I'm going to go straight in uh, to the one which you're probably expecting in the light of uh, the decision at Synod uh, last week and it's a bald question and it says do you think women should be bishops and then it's followed by do you think anyone should be a bishop (laughs) (laughs) Were those both questions asked by the same person? I assume so. It's on the same line, so I think Because
1: so. <laughs> I just think, isn't that a wonderful thing that someone would realize that beneath the question of should women be bishops is should anyone be bishops, which raises deeper questions about our whole understanding of leadership. Well, let me uh, say uh, every denomination obviously has to work through this on their own. If I were voting, I would have voted for women to be bishops. Uh, And uh, yet I understand that faith communities go through long, arduous processes as do governments and clubs and any other kind of human organization. They go through processes, as does the scientific community, in evaluating its standing current theories and sometimes abandoning those theories for new ones. But they only do that when the new theory has made its case. And so I'm sure that the recent vote on, on this issue uh, shows that, uh, that a- an alternative theory has made its case and has almost made its case to a majority but not quite yet and that that is an ongoing process. So, uh, the, and there are a hundred questions uh, uh, that we have to grapple with in, in the same way. But the deeper question about should there be bishops is especially interesting to me because uh, I, I, I suppose, because of my writing, I've had the amazing privilege of getting to know the heads of a lot of uh, of communions, especially in the United States, but also in some other countries. And I'll just tell you, I'm deeply impressed by the caliber of spiritual leadership at the head of all the nearly all the denominations that I've had the chance to meet meet personally. These are good and honest people, the ones I've met. I mean, there might be some bad ones out there, but I've sure met some wonderful people. And here's what almost all of them know. I don't think they knew this 15 years ago. Almost all of them know that the future of the Christian church will be different than the present and the past in terms of structure. The economic model of how churches work is less and less sustainable. Uh, the, uh, so many dimensions of how the church is structured and how the church works. Uh, they, they've reached a point now where they're becoming counterproductive to the mission of the church in many cases. So what I would say is this is a time when we need leadership more than ever, uh, but we need a kind of leadership that's willing to think in fresh ways about the church's future. A quick story comes to mind that might illustrate this, and then I know we have many other questions uh, but i uh, I have uh, four wonderful children, and one of my children was married recently, and it got some notoriety because uh, it 's my gay son who got married and um, when my son came out as gay and other people heard about it, I began to be approached by a lot of other parents of gay people. And I'll never forget a woman, who my wife and I have known since we were single. And her son had come out about the same time my son came out. And she was crying and crying and crying. And she said, here's my problem. If I'm loyal to my son, I will be causing a breach with my father, who is at this point in his life incapable of rethinking his views on homosexuality. If I'm loyal to my father, I'll be disloyal to my son. She said it's a terrible position to be in. And some of you might, if you've never been there, you might not understand that, but some of you maybe do. And this is one of the great challenges of adulthood and it's one of the great challenges of leadership. Maintaining loyalty to past generations and assuming loyalty for future generations. And this is one of the great challenges of any kind of leadership, but especially spiritual leadership. And it's especially hard in religious communities in the West because we've been obsessed with past generations and have thought far too little about future generations. And this, I think, is one of the changes that we're going through now.
0: Can I pick up on something else? Um, You were talking about dialogue uh, between Muslims and Christians a little earlier on. Then we had a question up here. Um, which says, is it possible for Christians of liberal or radical views to dialog not sure I like the use of that verb, uh, to dialogue with conservatives and evangelicals, and if so, how? Because yes. this, again, seems to me is, is a crucial, I mean, dialogue is at the center of everything we do. It really is, and it's, it's a great question.
1: Uh, it just, by way of a quick tangent, when I was at that first uh, common word, dialogue, I'll never forget, a group of Muslim scholars uh, and I were sitting talking, and I'd been introduced as an evangelical. And uh, uh, some evangelicals are horrified when that happens. Uh, <laughs> but it's my background. And they said, you know, we really prefer talking to evangelicals much more than talking to liberal Christians. Which surprised me. And I said, well, why is that? Oh, they said, well, evangelicals tell us we're going to hell uh, right away. And of course, we expect that. But evangelicals have deep beliefs that they firmly hold, and when they articulate their beliefs that they firmly hold, we feel free to articulate our deep beliefs that we firmly hold. But when we're around those liberals, they're so polite, they won't mention anything that they believe, which makes us very, feel very rude and impolite if we mention what we believe. So we feel we're walking on eggshells. <laughs> And I thought to myself, this is the, you know, that just expressed to me one of our challenges. Here's the way I articulated it in this book, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? We know how to have a strong religious identity that's hostile toward other religious identities. And we know how to have a weak religious identity that's tolerant toward other religious identities. What we haven't learned is how to have a strong religious identity that is benevolent toward other religious identities. So that the stronger I hold my Christian commitment, is it possible to imagine, the stronger I hold that commitment, the more committed I am to being loving and respectful and honoring of other human beings, whatever their religious commitment or lack thereof. And part of what that involves is An ability to engage with difference respectfully and the fact is you can be a liberal who is extremely tolerant of all other liberals I think that's sinking in Uh, and one of our great challenges whether we're liberal or conservative is to realize that the real challenge is finding a basis within myself from my own moral framework to encounter the other and to treat the other with respect. You know, I heard a good term for this recently. It was called moral empathy. I'm sorry, intellectual empathy. The ability to try to enter into another person's perspective and see the world through their eyes. I might not agree with it, but unless I'm willing to try to enter into their shoes and see the world through their eyes, then I'm not going to be able to really experience that dialogue. And this to me is a, a moral and spiritual quality that, uh, that I think it would be a great thing if we understood, speaking as a Christian, you're a better Christian when you, when you develop this kind of intellectual empathy. It's one dimension of being a loving and compassionate person who loves your neighbor as yourself, and who wants to do for your neighbor what you
0: wish your neighbor would do for you. It's very difficult, isn't it, when um, you come against uh, a force of argument, which is presented not necessarily on the, just yes. within the Christian sphere, yes. but which is presented as the word of God, yes. the law of God. How, yes. how, do you, how do you have a dialogue yes, about I, that? Yes, I, I can't say I've found the answer to that, so let's go on to the next
1: question. <laughs> uh, well, I, I mean, sometimes what that means, to be to tell the truth about this, sometimes what that means... Is it means you are willing to enter into dialogue, knowing you will not be listened to, you will not be listened to you'll be insulted you'll be mistreated, and going into the dialogue anyway if for no other reason to manifest in neighborly presence to the other, even knowing that that will not be reciprocated uh, and um of course for people who know the teaching of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, this is blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who hunger for thirst and thirst for justice, blessed are those who are persecuted for justice sake. This is, I think, so central to the teaching of Jesus. And uh, and sadly, it hasn't been an important part of our moral curriculum, but maybe we're going to realize that uh, it should be.
0: Uh, I've got a question here about some of J- other elements of Jesus' teaching. It says, um, Do you think that Jesus taught absolute nonviolence and that we are called to follow him in that? So it's a difficult question for us to yes. face in the 21st century, isn't it? Especially with both the United States and Britain active in the spheres that they are. Yes. Um, yes, it is very,
1: very difficult. And I, I don't think I can answer it uh, satisfactorily because. Uh, for a couple of reasons, uh, I, it's not because I'm afraid to be forthcoming. It's because I think the word "absolute" is highly problematic. Uh, uh, so when I'm invited to be in a dialogue about absolute pacifism, for example, versus just war theory, I just feel there—it's a worthwhile discussion to have. It's not the one. It's not where I would like to insert myself. Because my understanding of the way God works with human beings is that God always begins with us where we are and helps us to take a step in the right direction. And the question is, what is the right direction? And as soon as we talk about absolute nonviolence, uh, I, I just think right away that puts us beyond where many of us are capable of taking a next step. Maybe I could use a quick example if global climate change is half as serious as all of our data is telling us, 500 years from now, our ancestors will look back on us as the generation that destroyed the planet and that created unimaginable suffering for future generations. And what they would would maybe come back in a time machine and they'd say, are you absolutely against fossil fuels? Well, the fact is, even if we are against fossil fuels and we write about it on a computer, that computer wouldn't have been produced by fossil fuels, you see. So we're so complicit in a a world of what we might call dirty energy. And so... I'm against violence, absolutely, but I'm part of a dirty energy economy. I'm part of an economy and a a way of life where there's violence. And so my desire is to take every possible step that we can toward nonviolence. The person who helped me on this subject more than any other, he just died recently, but it was Walter Wink. And Walter Wink said something like this. He talked about just war theory and the problem one of the problems with just war theory is that we make it sound like there are two ideals that we can choose from one is the ideal of nonviolence and the other is the ideal of just war theory upheld as two absolutes but what walter wink said is maybe we should rename it not just war theory as if war will be eternally desirable to god it's very hard to read the bible And it's very hard to read the teachings of Jesus and say that war is eternally desirable, although some people maybe in this room would say that. Uh, But he said maybe we should call it preliminary violence reduction theory. (laughs) In other words, can we say it this way? A just war is better than war for any reason. (laughs) But maybe we should say, but that's only one step up and we need to move to a much better step. If I could say it this way, uh, for husbands to stop beating their wives is a very, very good step, but that doesn't mean it's fine for them to insult their wives as long as they don't beat their wives, you see. And, And so we could talk about emphasizing reduction in domestic violence as a first step toward better marriages but the goal is never just ending uh, the domestic violence. The goal is beautiful, harmonious, fulfilled, loving relationships. And so that's why I find it hard to answer a question about absolutes. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we could at least get all Christians to agree that there is something better than just war. And that even if we will engage in or support in this or that war, that our dream and goal is that we're moving one step closer to putting war behind us, and what if more and more of us were to in, invest our lives and energies in, to take a recent American president and put a slight twist on his words, preemptive peacemaking. This seems to me to be the real call of the Christian gospel. It's to preemptive peacemaking. And that's, to me, a very creative endeavor.
0: And maybe if we could get to this, the, the dialogue of which we've been talking, yes, maybe more these things would be more possible. But it seems to me it's a long way off for some people. I'm going to stick with the idea of um, life, what we need. Yes to be Christian. That's that's a very awkward phrase. I don't know if it sounds quite as heavy-handed as that. But I have a question here which uses that phrase. It says, do you think activism for justice is essential to being a Christian? Yes. Good. (laughs) Yes, I mean, this is so
1: tragic. Can I just say, one tragic thing in the English-speaking world is that, I don't know if this goes back to Wycliffe or Tyndale or... Uh, King James and his crew or whatever, but it's tragic to me that we created, we took a, when we translated the Bible into English, there was a a very sturdy and important Greek word called the word dikaios, and there's various forms dikaiosune, and we tended to translate that into the English word righteousness. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word righteousness, but most people, I think they hear the word righteousness and they think of moral or religious fastidiousness. But interestingly, if we spoke Spanish, every time that word dikaiosune would be in the Greek New Testament, in Spanish we would read the word justicia. If we spoke French, it would be justice. If it were Italian, justicia. Uh, It really changes the way you read the Bible. Try it when you read the New Testament, when you see the word righteousness, stick in the word justice. And if you want to take it even a step further, now this is an act of interpretation, but I think it has real merit. Try sticking in the word restorative justice. Because even the word justice to many people in the English-speaking world means punitive justice. Uh, I think you can make a case that in the Hebrew mind, punitive justice was not full, fully God's justice. God's justice was restorative as an example of this you could take a psalm for example psalm 98 it says rejoice that everybody in the world should rejoice because god is coming to judge the world now for most people the idea of god coming to judge the world means he's going to throw it into hell you know but no in the ancient hebrew mind god is coming to judge the world meant The judge is coming to town and the judge is going to bring justice to the world and set things right. So it's a restorative justice and uh, oh My goodness, so try these words from Jesus then from the Sermon on the Mount Uh, Don't worry about all the things that people worry about what you should eat what you should drink what you should wear but seek first God's reign and God's justice if you do that Everything else you need will be taken care of. It's, it's, it's a remarkable thing to think of right now with the recent trouble in Gaza and Israel and to realize that uh, you can't say you want peace unless you work for justice on all sides. And so justice becomes really foundational. It turns out I think Jesus was really right. <laughs> if, you, if all the other things we want require us to seek justice. Not just for ourselves, but for our neighbor as well.
0: There's another question here, which is the the last one I'll do on the Christian life for the moment, unless any more come in, which it says, do you think someone can live a Christian life without knowing it, without knowing they have faith, or without having faith at the center uh, of that life? Another really wonderful question. Uh, And
1: I think there's a beautiful answer to this that actually is given to us in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. You get 10 chapters into the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and there's this beautiful story about a man named Cornelius who is a Roman uh, centurion. This would be like today in Iraq telling a story about a British or American uh, officer because uh, the Romans were the occupiers of the Jews. And, uh, and this fellow named Cornelius uh, is... A good man who gives to the poor who cares and an angel appears to him and says you're one of the good guys and uh, you're going to have a meeting with somebody and however you want to interpret angels and so on just get the idea that Peter then uh, is this early follower of Jesus is going to end up having a meeting with his fellow Cornelius and the problem in the meeting is not a problem with Cornelius the problem is a prejudice in Peter against Cornelius And so the story uh, is, it's really worth reading if you haven't read it recently. The encounter of Peter with Cornelius uh, requires Peter's prejudice against him for not being of the right religion for that prejudice to be overcome. Uh, Now, interestingly, someone might derive from that saying, oh, then it doesn't matter what you believe. But uh, that's, that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, I think it really does matter what we believe, uh, if you believe that God is violent, I would like to know about that if i 'm going to live next to you. Um, uh, I, I will live I, I will feel differently if I live next to you if I know that you believe God is violent or if I know you believe God is nonviolent uh, so I think our beliefs about God are very important, but the idea that there are that god has the list of some of us who are on the inside and that puts us at this favored position and everybody else at the outside Uh, i think that's uh, a real problematic idea
0: so it is possible to answer the question it is possible for to live a christian life without knowing it
1: well again the word christian becomes a problem because if you go to the dalai lama and say i think you're living a christian life without knowing it you know what I'm saying, It—it's it, we don't realize how patronizing that might sound, as if you're only good if you have our label, you see. Uh, so I would rather say it this way, uh, that, uh, well here's how the Apostle Paul said it in Romans chapter 2, he said some people don't have the law in writing or on tablets or on paper, but they have something of it in their hearts. And uh, you'd be better off to be following something that you don't have on paper in your heart than if you have it on paper and you're not following it.
0: (laughs) The Dalai Lama would have a very good chuckle about that line, I suspect, if he were were here. I've got some very short, punchy questions here, which I'm just going to throw at you. Um, People taking me very literally, which is good. They're not easy. So the first one is, why Jesus Christ? Yes. You know,
1: one of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible is this. uh, uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but would have life eternal or a life of the ages. And it's an interesting phrase because, or it's an interesting verse because it doesn't say that God loved Jews so much or God loved Christians so much or God loved Southern Baptists so much that, you know, he he gave Jesus, but that Jesus is a gift to the world. We'll actually sing this uh, in the Advent season, joy to the world. So one way to say this is to say that Jesus is a gift to the world and I am glad to be a witness to that fact. Uh, One of the ways Jesus is a gift to the world is by telling us to love one another. Now you might say, well, A lot of other people said we ought to love one another too and thank God for them as well. I think they're a gift to the world as well. But Jesus fills a a special role uh, in history for one reason that he was born among the Jews those people who uniquely believed that God was on the side of the slaves not the slave masters. And then managed to stand up to the roman authorities the most powerful imperial force of his day and imagine to and managed to embed in the roman empire a little movement of people we might say to be a little playful and provocative in today's world little cells that spread through the roman empire detonating explosive acts of kindness and planning and plotting reconciliation, uh, this movement that ended up uh, uh, promoting this remarkable message—to uh, not only love your brother and your friend and your neighbor, but also your enemy—and uh, I, I think that's a pretty wonderful thing about Jesus. I think uh, it's this is why I, I. Uh, would much rather call myself an advocate for following Jesus than just as an advocate for any religion because I think just about everybody would agree that uh, we've got a long way to go in actually learning to follow that path.
0: And My second punchy question is, or at least the one from the floor, is what counts as salvation? Mm. Uh,
1: I guess it depends who you ask. for some some of my critics, I, whatever I am certainly doesn't count, you know. So people define salvation differently. When I talked about that narrative question before, it really is very relevant to this word salvation. Because if you read back through the sightline of Christian history, you read through the line of Martin Luther and Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine, and you define salvation through a tradition that says it's being saved from the consequences of original sin. Uh, But of course, that phrase, original sin, and even the concept, original sin as popularly understood, was an unfamiliar, unnamed, uninvented concept in the time of Jesus and Paul and so on. Uh, That word salvation, if we let it be defined by Jesus' ancestors, the word gets its meaning in the Exodus narrative. Saving is what God does for the slaves, when he gets them out of slavery, saving means liberating. And uh, this is my real problem. Many of you would be familiar with a good friend of mine, Rob Bell, who wrote a book called Love Wins. That I uh, managed to get him in even as much trouble as I've gotten into, maybe more, uh, with some folks. Um, but what? People then often want to ask, are you a universalist, are you an exclusivist, an inclusivist? And all of those words depend on a definition of saving or salvation that involves getting people out of hell. That's back to that six line narrative, getting them off of this line and onto this line. Uh, But if saving means liberating, then I would have to say, is God's desire for everyone to be liberated from all forms of human evil and all forms of degradation and all forms of of falling short of the glorious life that God intends for us? None of us are fully liberated. So all of us are are in the process of experiencing liberation. And and in that way, salvation isn't, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, do you have the right salvation card in your pocket but salvation is much more uh, whether we're participating uh, in that creative, liberating reconciling work in the world
0: well, I've got two questions here which I'm going to put together, they make, they make a rather large subject but they're about transformation and one of them refers to liberation which we have just touched on And the first one is, could you say something about how you think the church needs to change or develop in order to embody liberation and reconciliation? The second one, which I hope I can put together with, is is surely the essence of Christianity is about transformation, uh, personally, corporately, and universally? So so, so that's a statement or a question? That is, well, actually, it is is a question. Surely the essence of Christianity is about transformation. Say it for me one more time then. Yeah, the second one. Surely the essence of Christianity is about transformation. Yes. Personally, corporately,
1: universally. Yes, okay. So this, this, these are very good questions and surely it is. Uh, why, that's why Jesus, I think, told all those stories about the good news being like a seed that gets planted or yeast that gets worked into the dough or a light that shines in the darkness. Just the very presence of the light brings change the presence of the yeast brings change the presence of the seed brings change so it is about uh, it is about transformation Uh, how the church engages in this I think is extremely varied and this is one of the reasons why I see the diversity of denominations not as a problem but as a uh, as an advantage An attitude of exclusivity and superiority and supremacy among denominations and competition that's terribly problematic but I think there's a way to see what's happened in the church not just as division but as diversification so if I can say it this way and I'm not saying that any of these churches fulfill their potential in this regard but I'd like to be hopeful You know, there are things that the Roman Catholic Church can do as an organized unit in a positive way to make a difference, if they wanted to, that they really could organize to do. Uh, They could do things, especially in Latin America, for example, that nobody else could do if they decided to do that. Uh, These days, Pentecostalism is growing so much in Africa, Latin America, parts of Asia. If Pentecostalism wanted to make a difference in areas of social justice, they really, really could. Um, the The problem is, because of our narrative assumptions, not that many people actually would say, surely the purpose of the church is transformation. They would say, Surely the purpose of the church is warehousing souls until they can be sent to their final destination. Um, And um, uh, so here is where these theological issues have a tremendous impact. But if I could mention uh, three ways that I think that how the church could be involved in liberation. If I could just briefly mention three and I'm not saying these are the three most important they're just the three that are coming to my sleep-deprived mind at this moment. One is by something you brought up earlier. It, It would be by teaching people, not just telling people to love their neighbor, but teaching them, training them how to love their neighbor. Not just telling them they're morally obligated to love their enemy, but actually helping them learn how to love someone who's different from them or how to work to reconcile with someone who's alienated from them. You know, there are ways to do that. And it's kind of sad that we just make people feel guilty for not doing it without actually doing our best to train them to really do it. Uh, it, It's tragic to think that this Sunday, millions of people, I guess uh, billions of people, will gather in church services around the world, and relatively few of them will leave having been trained how to better love their neighbor, stranger, outcast, or enemy. Um, so just training people in that could be a, make a phenomenal difference. Um, a second example, really, the United Kingdom leads the world in this. Um, the whole area of fair trade, I think, is a huge area that's going to become more important in the, in the decades ahead. To distinguish it from international trade, let me instead call it the power of ethical buying. You know, uh, every one of us who has a cell phone, in that cell phone is a mineral called coltan. And a whole lot of that coltan, the majority of it, I think, in the world comes from Eastern Congo. And while all the other uh, headlines are going on, a lot of people don't know that chaos is breaking out in eastern Congo once again. Somewhere between 3 and 6 million people have been killed in eastern Congo in the last 20 years and a lot of people don't know about it. And one of the reasons uh, for the unrest in Coltan is militia, supported by governments, supported by major corporations, are making a lot of money on coltan And they keep the unrest going so that they can keep making huge amounts of money through that trade and whether you have an iphone or a nokia or whatever you have wouldn't it be nice if we could know when we're buying a phone that the company made sure that it only got coltan from reputable sources that paid its workers well and didn't participate in uh in all kinds of injustice well that's what we mean by ethical buying and My hope is that just as we outlawed uh, the obvious kind of slavery in your country uh, over 200 years ago and in my country a little over 150 years ago, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could dream that 50 or 100 years from now, we would be able to, in a sense, vote with every pound that we spend for companies that are doing a better job of preserving the environment, caring for the poor, and, uh, and contributing something beyond just profit to rich people's uh, big accounts. Uh, so that would be a way that we, we could organize for the common good uh, in, in a way that would really make a difference. And one other way that we could do this involves clergy. And it involves our clergy leading the way. All clergy are busy. I, I, I imagine there are some lazy ones, but I've never met them. I, I, when I was a pastor, I was around, I, was, I worked incredibly hard and I was around incredibly hardworking people. So we would have to find ways to relieve the duties of clergy to do this. But what if we said to our clergy, we don't want you to be the pastor of this church. We want you to be the pastor from this church to the community. We want you to lead us in a constructive engagement in the, in the community. Uh, that could really change the way that churches become agents of justice in our world.
0: I think I've got time for one more good. question. Um, and if you wanted to use this as a, um, as a sort of wind-up in any way, if there's anything Great. you want to say that, uh, that you haven't <laughs> said, this would be a good time to do it. So it uses a quote of Simone Weil, who it says that the tragedy of Christianity is that it came to see itself as replacing other religions instead of adding something to them all. Would you like to comment on that?
1: Uh, well, first, the, the best thing to do would be just to have you read it again okay. because Simone Weil is saying something incredibly
0: important. The, uh, the, the line is, the tragedy of Christianity is that it came to see itself as replacing other religions instead of adding something to them all.
1: I, you know, this is a, a, a very powerful statement and it, it connects to my own biography because my paternal grandfather was from Scotland. He emigrated to Canada and then, uh, and then became a missionary to Angola. And so my father grew up in Angola and Zambia for part of his childhood. And they were part of the missionary movement that was centered here in England and it was so deeply related to the British Empire. And uh, there, there was this assumption of superiority. It was the superiority and supremacy of white people, of European people, of English people, and so on. Uh, and it, it casts Christianity as the chaplaincy to an empire and the chaplaincy uh, to uh, domination of other nations and cultures with their religion. Uh, and it 's so different from the image we 're given of Jesus. It just sounds a lot more like Caesar than it sounds like jesus and um, so I think about uh, I think about paul 's words in in Philippians that the amazing thing about Jesus is that jesus didn 't try to grasp at equality with God but rather. Which, by the way, is something all of us try to do. I mean, in some ways, it's the reversal of the story of Adam grasping for the fruit as a way of saying, I want to be able to to be like a God and decide who's good and evil. Uh, But rather, pours himself out to be a servant to everyone. And it's a fascinating thing to imagine a conversion of the Christian vision of mission. To say, our goal is not to convert everybody our goal is to serve everybody our goal is to give everybody every treasure they're willing to receive that we've received and of course that wouldn't exclude also us being willing to receive treasures that others want to offer us and um, so this to me is a a wonderful opportunity uh, that and Simone Weil's quote reminds us then uh, that it's not a bad thing after 2,000 years of our religion going to take a look back and say, yeah, we've done pretty well in this, haven't done so well in that. And to say, what could the future be like if we opened our ears and opened our hearts again in a fresh way to, uh, to our founder? Uh, what would happen if Jesus actually got a hearing again in the Christian religion? That is an exciting thought thanks that's a good place to end I think
0: thank you very much well um, I hope you agree with me that's been an absolutely fascinating uh, evening first of all can I thank you all for your attention for being here tonight and for your excellent questions I'm sorry there are one or two which I didn't manage to get to Um, there will be a film of this event uh, available on our website and if you've missed any of the others in the series they are also available on the website for you to look at uh, I have two tasks for you before you disappear. Um, the first is uh, that this is the last in the uh, Case for God series, and I wondered, therefore, if you would like to say a huge thank you to Elizabeth Foy, who is sitting just over there, who's put this whole series together and has masterminded it and organized it. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. And your final task this evening uh, is to say a huge thank you to Brian McLaren, who's been a wonderful speaker. Thank you. Thanks Thank you.